Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I hope you had a good week. I'm so glad to be out of the house. I'd have, I'd have gone to church anywhere today just to get out of the house. We had our, our grandkids, six of them, live two and a half to three blocks away. And so with school out all week, instead of bugging their mother, they thought they'd come down and bug me the whole time. And we watched enough movies. If I see another movie this week, I think I'll scream. I think we went through the entire Netflix shows for kids that you can watch. And I could only watch so many of them, but there was nowhere to go. We were trapped in the house, and so it's good to get out. Okay, let's get into this today. I'm going to do with this one, uh, I really think, you know, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All of it. But you know that sometimes, like when you're reading the begats, you know, you just kind of get through it as quick as you can and stuff. I think of all the passages in the New Testament, this one may be one of the most important ones. They're all important. But I, you'll, I think you'll see by the time I get through why I think this is very, very important of what we're going to look at. And also what I want to do today is I want to intertwine this among a story of a man who wrote Amazing Grace. His name was John Newton. And I want to do that because if anybody understood grace, that man did. And how God took him from the very depths of depravity to one of the highest levels in life that you could ever ask for, who literally turned the world upside down in his 80s. You may not be aware of that, but he, along with William Wilberforce, were able to outlaw slavery in England in his 80th year. He had worked on that his entire life, and as a frail man, who no longer had much strength or weakness. He still poured his heart and soul into all that he was doing. And there was a reason why he did that, and I'll make a reference to that. If you're familiar with the story, you know why he did it. But I'll reference that in just a little bit. But I'm going to take one verse of that song. It says, and I'm not going to sing for you, because every time I sing it, people ask me to step down. <laughs> I have two brothers. One is four-year all-state tenor in the state of Texas, Singing, singing groups, had a record contract at one time, but didn't want to go that route. My other brother is New York Metropolitan Art trained and also a graduate of North Texas. My mom and dad, when they were having their 45th anniversary, I don't know why we threw a 45th, but we did for them because 50th, they didn't want us around. They went on a world tour or something. So we did a 45. And we grew up in the First Baptist Church of Orange, a town about this size is what I grew up in and went to the First Baptist Church there. And so we were going to sing a trio that Sunday, and they're on television and radio, and so I had never been asked to sing, and my brothers grudgingly let me join them. And so on Saturday after the reception, celebrating my parents' 45 years of marriage, we went in the auditorium to practice, and after two run-throughs of the song, they asked me to sit down. And they did one of the best duets the next day you've ever heard. So, so I'm not going to sing this, but here's what it says. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. You're familiar with this. We've already come. But grace brought us safe thus far. And grace is what's going to lead us home. My points this morning are going to be centered around that particular verse. And we're going to look at it through what Paul said and through the eyes of John Newton. Join with me as we pray. Father, 
help us to grasp the significance of this passage today, especially the first three verses. We need to know where we come from because we'll come to appreciate even greater what you've done for us. And your love and mercy are beyond anything we can grasp nor understand. And there's no words I can even begin to deliver today that will even touch the significance and the impact of your mercy and love that you've shown each one of us. But may this day when we leave here, we walk away with a greater appreciation and it make us to be the kind of men and women that you've called us to be as we live our lives this following week. You be glorified in all we do now is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as I read the first seven verses. You're familiar with them, but you follow along in your Bible as I read and God's word says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm, I'm going to touch it lightly. I, I really almost did a whole sermon on that this morning, but with my time frame, I didn't. That is so significant and so important. It is, it, 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 listen, it, do not water that verse down and what that means in your life. So Paul is reminding them. He took three chapters in Romans to say this, that he's going to say in three verses. So it may look short right now, but the significance of this in your life is impactful. So you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we, Paul includes himself, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And verse 4 may be the most important verse you'll ever read. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he's loved all of us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Now you know it's in 2.8, but it was first said here, Paul, for by grace you've been saved. He's not only made us alive, but he's raised us up with him. And not only raised us up with him, he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, somewhere down the road for all of us, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. So let's take the first part of Newton's verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. Little dictionary work to start it out with. The word danger that he's using in that hymn means the possibility of suffering or harm. Real dangers that people face as they're in life. And sometimes there's the danger of the world, and sometimes just the dangers as you get old, as your body begins to break down. One of my best friends celebrated his 70th birthday yesterday, and we had a surprise party uh, way out uh, past Granbury, and everybody there is 70 plus, so I was the youngest one in the room at 69. They've been my friends since we were 30s, and I sat there looking around the room, and said, it's pathetic how far we've come down. I mean, this great group of people, they're showing their age at this point. I'm not, but, but they are. <laughs> but all they did around the birthday table yesterday was talk about their aches and their pains. You young people don't have any idea what we're talking about, but you'll figure it out someday. But that's all they talked about. So there are, that's the kind of danger he's talking about. It's a danger of the threats of evil out in the world. It's a danger of just living a life on a regular basis. And then the word toil is what was promised to Adam. You work your fingers to the bone to survive in this world. 
you do a lot and most time never appreciated or never seen or anything else. It's, it's a toil, it's hardships. It's, it's, it's like trying to keep the weeds out of your garden. No matter how hard you work, it keeps coming back. And then he uses snares. And a snare is just a trap for catching an animal. I've used them when I hunted in East Texas when I was in high school to be able to capture something that we were trying to get. That's Newton's view of world. It was through all that he had come in life. Our being born in this world is literally being taught, it's reality being dropped into a danger zone. Remember the old lost in space when they go, danger, danger, Mr. Robinson. Well, you and I have been dropped in a danger zone. And that was where God put us here in this earth. So what you got to know is our ability to handle it in this world, we don't have that ability. You don't handle it. You don't have the, the strength, wisdom, or anything else to handle all that goes on in this world. How do I know that? Because what does verse 1 say? You were dead. You were dead in your own mistakes, your sins and trespasses. I know most of the time it's very easy for us to be pointing fingers at everybody else and how they mess up and how they get it wrong and how they've caused everything. No, you're in the position you were in in this world because of you, because of your own heart. You sang that a minute ago. I am breathing, but not alive. Maybe in more contemporary terms, we're in a sense, and don't take this too far, but zombie. Zombie is a walking dead. In one sense, we were walking dead. We were alive, we breathe, we act, we move, but spiritually we're dead. Everyone in here was spiritually dead, which means you cannot see the truth of God's word. You cannot hear that which is right and good. And you can't handle any of the pressures that come your way. And since you're dead in your own sins, it's your fault why you're there. And all of us have sinned and come short of the glory. You know all of that. You're now greatly impacted and influenced by everything that goes on in life. And so what does he say in verse 2? You walk according to the course of the world. You'll be amazed. You know, when I was in high school, I was very much concerned about what all the other kids in school might think. Peer pressure. You, you've, you've heard that. It's always amazing I let it dictate me as much as I did. I was uh, an athlete. I played football, basketball, and baseball. And so I was hanging around with all the athletes all the time. And our key players, I wanted to always be next to them because they were the famous ones. Our quarterback was quarterback of A&M as a freshman in college. He started for them. A couple of our running backs and receivers made great college scholarships and went on. And so you, I, was, I was very much wanting to be in their approval. I wanted everything about what went in in life to be around their approval of me. See, I was 5'4 and 120 when I graduated. And so for me, that was even more important. I found that fascinating now that I look back 50 years later. You know, I know why? Because after May the 31st of 1971, I never saw any of them ever again. Not till our 45th anniversary of our high school did I ever see them again. So I, I think now that I'm an adult, I'm not as affected by peer pressure. Oh, don't be surprised how still affected you are by the pressures of the world. Watch cultures and trends and how fast they've changed. A lot of us are watching that happen in dramatic ways that we never thought possible within the world in which we're living in right now. The world has powerful impact and influence, and when you're lost, you're totally at the mercy of the world to drag you along. And that's where you and I were. Paul said he was too. The second thing is you walk according to the power of Satan in your life there in verse 2. Walk according to what? The prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. Satan is real. Evil is real. We may not grasp nor understand it, but the impact and influence on this world is stunning. 
He's the father of lies. He's the father of murders. And he is active, deceiving people in this world on a continuous basis. And before you met Christ, you would have been deceived easy. Because you cannot see nor understand what really righteousness is and what good is. Such were some of you, is what he's telling us at this point. But not only that, you're influenced by the spirit of the age. So not only the world has influence, Satan has influence, but the very spirit of the age. And we live in an interesting time frame here in America right now. And the spirit of the age is not very good. And I go to Cuba on a regular basis and I, I work with my friends there. And the spirit of their age is even worse than what we have here and what they're going through as a church. It's, it's stunning what they're having to face and the difficulties they are facing. But what Paul's doing right here, he's writing to tell us, this is who you are. Now, if you knew my wife when she was in high school, I didn't meet her till later on when she had graduated from TCU and I was a student at Southwestern. My kids, after they've been around her all these years, said she must have never done one thing wrong in high school. She was a goody two-shoes is what I would call her. She never got out of line. She never did anything wrong. She was band leader of her high school at Brewer High School. She was drum major. Uh, she was in church every Sunday, church pianist of a church twice this size when she's 14 and those things. If you had met me in high school, I was okay. If you met me in college at UT, I was not. I got pledge of the year at a fraternity at the University of Texas. You don't get that by being the good guy. You wouldn't have liked me. My wife said if she'd have met me during those days, she'd have never gone out with me one time. So our testimonies are different. I slipped and messed up. I almost flunked out of UT. My wife aces through college. I come to Christ at 20. She's always been in the church. But we're the same when it came to fallenness. Now, I will tell you the most dramatic thing about my wife was that after our six months of marriage at Southcliffe Baptist Church in Fort Worth, one Sunday I'm counseling a family who joined the church. We had counselors, and I was one of the counselors because I was in seminary. And so I was back in the back, came out looking for my wife, and I couldn't find her. And it was a big church, ran a couple thousand. I'm walking around, where'd Jan go? One of the pastors said, well, she's back in the counseling room. I said, I wonder what she's doing back there. She gave her heart and life to Christ. She had never done that. Church every single day. Good kid. Never got in trouble. There was a dramatic change within her. In her spirit. In her hunger for the word. So though we may have come in two diverse ways and eventually met and got married and have spent now nearly 47 years together and still have as much fun today as we did the first time we ever met, we came from different backgrounds, but yet this is who we were. And this is important that you understand this because if you look at verse 3 what was driving all of this is the lust of your flesh the lust of your minds and you're driven by all of that you do what you want to do oh you can always justify it I used to come home and begin talking to my wife you know that pickup they have down in Pleasanton I'd start trying to tell her about how neat it was she knew what I was doing I was trying to justify me going by another pickup and finally she said, just go get your pickup and stuff. She didn't want to hear all of that stuff. I could justify anything I thought I needed to do next. Because I was driven by a desire. It was a joke at Village Parkway that I pastored for years. I told them one time I'd been praying for years that God would give me a brand new 
This was in 2000, it was, no, it would be before COVID, 2019, 2019 in a sermon. I said, I've been praying for a brand new GMC Silverado. God hadn't answered the prayer yet. And then one of the men in the church said, they don't make a Silverado. They make a Sierra. God couldn't answer the prayer because it didn't exist. But it's amazing how all the world grabs at us all the time and we fight these battles all of our lives. But what you need to know about this brokenness that every one of us in this room have walked through, whether we were the really good ones when we were younger or whether we were really the worst ones in the entire town of Greenville and what you've grown up in, we were all lost. We were all dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were all being led the wrong way. And if you'll notice in the verse 3, we were all by nature children of wrath. And the only outcome of your life was to face the wrath of God and judgment from Him. Which meant this, you and I have absolutely no hope of any kind. Well, let me go back a minute. What about John? Where did John Newton come from? John was born in 1725. 1725, before this nation was even founded. That's his time frame. When he was seven, his mother died. No boy should ever lose their mother at that age, but it happens. His dad sailed on ships, so at the age of 11, he worked on a slave ship in Africa at the age of 11. He was exposed at that age to the most horrific side of life. By the time he was 12, this young boy had experienced more evil, seen more evil than this probably entire room combined have seen in our lives. By his teenage years, you now have an angry young man. Exceptionally angry young man. He trusts absolutely no one in life. Life has dealt him a horrible hand. Life's not right, it is not fair, and it is evil. And so he became an alcoholic, and by teenage years, he's a drunk. He is very immoral. Every time they'd go into port, he'd find him some women. He, by the time he's 18, has done everything wrong you can do in life. He is so abusive, his language is so foul, that even the other sailors could not stand to be around him. This is a guy who authored your hymn that you love to sing, Amazing Grace. This is a man who on two or three occasions should have been killed in incidents that happened in Africa that he only later can say only by the grace of God was he still allowed to go. Which brings me back, how do any of us survive being dead in our trespasses and sin? You know, I didn't come to Christ at the age of 21. When I'm about 18, a friend of mine who fought in Vietnam had just come back. Oli had a death wish. Oli had had to kill a, a, a little child in Vietnam. He never had gotten over it. And if you go to southeast Texas, they have the Rainbow Bridge. It's 250 feet tall. It's a mile and a half long. Two lanes up, two lanes down. And as we were going up in his GTO, he decided to pass five cars going to the top. And as we got to the top... The lights from the other side were coming. We're doing 100 miles an hour on a bridge, 200 feet, with railings about this high of steel on either side. And we pulled in just at the nick of time. And I've always thought, 
if that had not worked out that way, Steve would have been in hell. Because the judgment of God is real on all of us. And we do not escape. We don't have special privilege at that point to be able to escape. Now let me stop for a moment because all week long I couldn't get this out of my mind. I wrote the sermon on Monday. It's a brand new sermon I wrote. But something in the back of my mind kept going. But why is this important? Why, why do we have to talk about all this bad stuff that maybe we were before we came to Christ? What was in my mind the entire time is Luke 18. You're familiar with the story even if you don't know what's there. Two men went into the temple to pray. Two men go into the temple to pray. Something probably both have done every single day. Jesus points it out, this story. One of them, who is a Pharisee, a religious leader, skilled in the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, and everything else. He stands there and goes, I thank you, God, because I'm not like all these other people standing here in this temple. I am not like them at all. I am not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like that tax collector over in the corner there. I'm religious. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes. Does not the arrogance drip out of that in the most dramatic of ways? But over in the corner, off in the side, was a tax collector who was hated by all people of his day, collecting money for the Romans among the Jewish people. So he was viewed a traitor. He couldn't hardly walk among the people at all. We know the story of Zacchaeus and Matthew and others like that. And he's over in the corner. And he's saying this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is why this little one, two, three verse of chapter two is so important. We need to know where we come from. And every one of us come from here. None of us did not come from this spot in life. Because if we understand where we came from, that we truly were dead then maybe it'll produce within us the kind of humility that we need to be able to live life. Proverbs says pride goes before destruction and too many people have destroyed their lives because of their arrogance. A haughty spirit goes before stumbling. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But humility always goes before honor, according to Proverbs. Do you know what caused the fall of Sodom? I said this two or three weeks ago. I don't know if it was a surprise to you. Come out of Ezekiel 18 or 16. Ezekiel says of the fall of Sodom, it wasn't because of sexual immorality, which was rampant and horrific. It was because of the arrogance of the people. And he told Israel, you're falling too, and your nation will be destroyed because of your arrogance. If you and I are going to be the kind of men and women God is going to call us to be, we need to understand then where we came from and that we're not better than anybody else. We're the same as everybody who's ever lived on this earth. Now, if I stopped right there, then this is a depressing sermon and go, gosh, what was the preacher doing today? But then you get verse 4. But God. Well, that's something when you realize where you're at and then you get, but God. Which means stop a moment. What's going on? Verse 4, but God. Rich in mercy. All of us in the room have shown mercy to someone at some time or another. We all have a little mercy that we show along the way, but God's rich in it. His richness in mercy is stunning. It's an overabundance of mercy. 
And why mercy? Because if this is who we are, verses 1 through 3, then the only reason you are where we are today is because of his mercy. He didn't have to do this. He did not have to give us this privilege and honor to be where we are today. But he did. Why did he do it? Well, it tells us in verse 4, because of his great love. Because of his great love. See, the love of God for each one of us is real. It's not some fairy tale story we're telling today, guys. It's real. You know, years ago, my wife had kidney cancer, and it was bad. Came out of the clear blue. We never saw it coming. She was in her mid-40s. And our first prognosis were not good at all. Jan and I had just sold our house, and we're living in an apartment because we were building a, our, our dream home. And one day, and I couldn't show I was scared. I couldn't show I was afraid. I couldn't show any emotion through this because she was too scared and the emotions were too real for her. And she needed me to be strong through all of this. And so I could give the appearance of it, but one day I just wasn't. And I went and sat on the back porch of the house we were building. It was only about half built. And I'm sitting there wondering, do I continue? Because if something happens to her, I'm not certain we can afford the house then. And I'm, I'm having to make some decisions that day. But I'm just sitting there going, what am I going to do? And I don't cry. There's very rarely ever been a tear from my eye ever. Even when my mom passed away, my dad passed away, I, was, I almost was thinking maybe I've been doing ministry too long. I'm too used to this. But I'm just not one who has tears show up at all. But on that day, tears started coming down my face because I was about to lose my best friend in life, it looked like. You know what got me through it? See, I've written doctor, doctoral papers on suffering. John Calvin's view of suffering, 50 pages. I've done a 100-page paper on Augustine's view of evil and suffering. Chunk all that. When you're hurting, you're hurting. And I sat there that day, and a song I learned when I was a kid in church came to mind. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't know, it just worked that day. I know the love of God is real. So that no matter whatever happened to Jan, we were still loved. Sometimes we don't think we're just loved when something good's happening. When something bad, we think he doesn't love us. Our God loves us always. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, it's because of his mercy that he's demonstrated love. He loves you so much, he gave you life. And so what did he do? See, a lot of times in our testimony, we talk about our coming to Christ. I don't do that as much anymore. I talk about the Father finding me. Because he found me at the age of 20, 21 years of age when he came. Notice what it says there in, in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, stated for the second time in this passage, he made us alive. He raised us up with him. You sang that a moment ago. I hope you meant it when you sang it because it's a truth in your life. You're here today because he made you alive. 
You didn't make yourself alive. I shared with you back several weeks ago about my sister's death. Stood at her casket with tears in my eyes again. Tammy, why? I wanted her back. I sat there and looked at her in the casket and there was nothing I could do. I couldn't give life back. I've done that with all my family standing there going, oh man, it's so helpless at this moment. They're gone. You and I did not have the power to make ourselves alive, but He made you alive. Why? Because He loved you. And because He was willing to show you mercy. But not only has He made you alive, but He raised us up. Because He wants you to live. Live for the first time ever with righteousness and truth in ways that will be stunning in life. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's God's grace working in your life that gave you life and raised you up so that you can now live life and live in a manner that is pleasing. But not only does he make you alive, not only does he get you up on your feet, but he gives you security. How do I know that? Well, look what it says there in the verses that follow. He raised us up in verse 6, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your position this day, if you're in Christ, is already secure in heaven. It speaks it in such a way that you're already seated. Now, I know where I'm standing here on the platform at Ridgecrest and Greenville, but somehow, some way, and I don't understand, it's beyond my pay grade, but my position is secure in one sense. I'm already seated in Christ, with Christ up in the heavens. So no matter what goes on in the rest of my life, one day I will be secure in that position. You want grace? How God could take a 20-year-old kid from Southeast Texas who grew up on the bios, who didn't do much of anything good or right in his early part of his life, who my parents were so disappointed in this kid that they had raised, suddenly turns around. Why did I do that? It wasn't me, but it was him through his son that did that. During John Newton's youth, four things kept him from totally collapsing. He said this later. The little bit of he remembered of his mother's love as a child wasn't much, but he could remember a few stories of his, in his mind how much his mother loved him. His father did his best to try to rescue him out of this and never gave up on his son through it all. He had an interest in books, good books, so he'd been reading and they were starting to catch his attention. But the other thing was the love of his life, Mary Catlett, the little teenage girl that he met who couldn't stomach him but for some reason loved him. And so he said that's what kept him from going totally over the deep end. But he said the key to my life was Jesus. And he came to know Christ in his late teens, early 20s, and it began to dramatically change this slave, traitor, to who would come the greatest, one of the greatest preachers in England's history. Which leads me to my last point. In the song that, we, that I referenced earlier, it's going to say this. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. But grace has brought us safe thus far. And then the last phrase to close, and grace will bring us 
home. What does that mean? For me, home doesn't exist anymore. I am going home this week to visit my brother. He lives in Mauriceville, but we grew up in Orange. Mom and dad are gone. My childhood home, somebody's lived in for a long time now. Home my mom and dad lived in in, in Orange after I left and was married and moved off. It's, it was a gorgeous home in its day. It's, whoever's got it's really let it run down. And so home, in one sense, does not exist for me anymore. My home is heaven. I'll go to southeast Texas on Thursday and Friday, but it won't be the same. Nobody's there anymore. Everybody has gone on. But I have a home. And what it tells me in verse 7 is this, in the age to come, he'll show the surpassing riches of grace. You and I can only lightly glimpse this we see through a mirror dimly and we don't always greatly appreciate this mercy and love but one day in heaven we will fully see it and i wonder what it'll be like i can only speculate eye has not seen nor ear heard all that god has in store for us it says in second first corinthians 2 but to finally be able to see clearly all that's going on not see through a mirror dimly anymore but see clearly you and I have seen enough that when we sing on Sunday morning, when Caleb is up here leading us and we're singing, we're singing out of what we've understood and we have a great joy in our heart because we understand these things. But how much more when we get there, when we fully sense and understand fully his grace and then we'll see it was only by his grace and mercy that we're even there. And why he picked us, I don't know. There's nothing about me was significant enough to even notice out of the billions who've ever lived on earth, but his grace found me. And what that ought to do is once we begin to understand this, humility is what should flow out of this. And that's what we're called to do. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Proverbs warns us the danger of arrogance, that we think we're better than everybody else because we're not. If we begin to understand this and move forward in the way that we should walk because of what God's grace has done for us, our greatest works may still be even farther ahead. John Newton literally became the greatest preacher in England. You ought to read his writings. They're, they're amazing, the insight and wisdom this man developed as he pastored for many years and became one of the leading uh, nonconformist preachers in all of England. But you know when his greatest work took place? When he was 80. When he was 80 years of age. His memory was fading. His health was weak. But his work with William Wilberforce kept going. And in 1807, as I said at the start of the sermon, slavery ended in England because of these two men. William Wilberforce was about five foot two. John Newton was a huge man. Stand next to each other. The politician and the preacher changed the world through a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of prayer. And when he was told that it finally passed both houses of parliament and had been agreed to by King George III, you know what John Newton said in his 80s? Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. He had accomplished his work. You ever heard that phrase before? You have. I referenced it back during Christmas. Simeon did that in Luke 2. And when he saw Jesus, he said, now it's time for me to go home. That's what John said. John Newton's last recorded words were, May God give us more light, more love, more liberty. And with that, 
he passed away. It was said that to the end, John Newton put in practice what he had preached. That his death was met with dignity, composure, and hope. His niece, who stood by his side to the very end, said, the sweetness and composure of his mind to the very end was stunning. You want to know why? Because this is a man who understood grace. He understood what Jesus has done. See, God gave him dying grace for dying days, and he walked through it with that grace. We live each day by the grace of God, and with it we'll walk with him in peace, love, and joy. John stayed in the fight till the very end. Even with the loss of his wife and the close loss of friends around him, he never lost the joy that was so real to him. And he even wrote his own funeral. I wonder if you've done that yet. He wrote his own. But here's what he had his conclusion to his funeral. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I love what he says next, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith, which he had long labored to destroy. And he now went to be with his Lord. If the Lord could change a man like John Newton and raise him up to the top of life to impact the world as he did, what could he do with each one of us? So my question to you today as I wrap this up is who are you today? Are you sitting here looking around and going, man, I thank God I'm not like the rest of these people in here. I am so much better than everybody else. I hope they get their act together. Or are you standing going, thank you, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you for your rich mercy, your grace, and your love. See, Christianity, if you come to grasp and understand this, should have a powerful impact on the kind of man or woman you'll be. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at it, but you'll strive every day to be and fight a good fight. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, tells Timothy, I'm the chief of all sinners. He said that later in life. Why did he say that? Because he was. Before he met Christ, if you read his testimony, he was responsible for people who had been imprisoned, beaten, and killed. He hated things. Passion drove him until he met Jesus. And they began to be the most patient, kind man in the entire world. Clements, the pastor of Corinth, later wrote in 90 AD, because he knew Paul before he died, said that was the most kind, patient man he had ever met in his life. It's an extra biblical writing, so don't know how accurate it is, but it's from a pastor of, uh, from Rome who wrote to Corinth. I challenge you today, you walk out here today, appreciative of the grace and mercy you found in Christ. And you demonstrate this week he's real in your life. That you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but he lives in you now. And you bring honor and glory to your Father in heaven this week in all that you do and say. Join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for the privilege and honor that you have given us to study your word. And so, Father, I pray for each one here we will take this section of passage very seriously in our life to realize where we came from. This is not a description of everybody around us, but it's a description of all of us. And so, Father, help us to grasp and understand that's where we were. We were children of wrath. We deserved your judgment. But yet, because of your great love for each one of us in this room, 
you showed us mercy. And through Christ, you made us alive. You've raised us up to be able to live life and give us the promise of a future with you in heaven. Watch over and guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.